Maybe you could turn with me to the book of Esther. Uh, as you're turning there, let me tell you about an article I came across uh, recently in Time magazine. Uh, this, mag- uh, this article in Time magazine implied that supermodels were the most envied women in the world. Now, you may or may not agree with that basic premise, but let me tell you what the article said. It claimed, the worldwide recession and tough times in the advertising business have made the top models one of the few reliable sales tools. At a time when spending is down, top mannequins can still make consumers buy, so they are paid millions. The article concludes... They define how a woman is supposed to look. Any fresh-faced 16-year-old who hopes to blossom into a supermodel must meet certain minimum requirements. She must be at least 5 foot 9, bones thin, full lips, high cheekbones, large eyes, long legs, and a straight but not too prominent nose. Models today are fitter than those of previous generations with fuller lips and bigger breasts. Who they are is how they look. Who they are is how they look. We live in a world that proclaims this message. Who you are is how you look. We we live in a culture, a society, a world that's just preoccupied with outward appearances. And almost unthinkingly, we can take on board this whole message. Already today, perhaps you will have made assumptions about people based on how they look. And others will perhaps have concluded things about you based on your appearance today. In fact, your view of yourself will perhaps have been influenced by the way you look. Now, We're going to be examining over the next couple of months one of the great stories in the Bible. It's about this woman named Esther who was chosen to be a queen strictly on the basis of her appearance, strictly on the basis of how she looked. But what we're going to see is that God was calling her to something much more than this. What I want us to do this morning is look at the first part of this tremendous story. And then I'm going to pause... And I want us together to consider three important questions. Three questions that I believe will help you evaluate how you can be faithful to God in a world that believes and proclaims who people are is how they look. All right, book of Esther, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. If you're case you're wondering which Xerxes it is, it's the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India all the way to Cush. At that time, this King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave another banquet, this time lasting a mere seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, 
Now, in the other site, I asked for some assistance because I wasn't quite clear what porphyry was. It caused a huge distraction because there were at least five people just on their phone the whole time trying to find out. In case you were going to do that, it is a purple stone resembling marble. That's what porphyry is. Linked with this was marble itself, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. I mean, a, a tremendous freedom. You can drink however you like, in your own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Meanwhile, verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Well, let's just pause there for a moment. You see, the author here wants us to understand something about this king, Xerxes. The author wants us to recognize he was a man of immense powers. His kingdom, it, it extended from Asia Minor all the way down into Africa, even into parts of northern India. This man, King Xerxes, was pretty much used to getting his own way. But as we're going to find out over the course of the next few weeks, he's not a particularly admirable character. He's very preoccupied with appearing to be great. But as we're going to see, he doesn't have a whole lot of inner strength. Now, the first glimpse we have of him here, he's giving this banquet. He's throwing a party. In fact, one of the ways you can divide up this whole book of Esther is it is a series of banquets from beginning to end. It's like an extended series of come dine with me, kind of one dinner party after another. Now, there are three banquets described just in these first nine verses alone. The first one lasts 180 days. I'll do the maths for you. That is six months of serious partying by this guy. And then when that one's over, he thinks, we need another party. So he launches into this second party that lasts just for a week. The first one, it was for really important types, VIPs, governors, and so on. The next one, it's for the whole capital, both great and small, rich and poor. It's open to the common people, so they'll be overwhelmed by the king's greatness and generosity. And then in verse 9, we stumble across this third banquet, this time given by Queen Vashti. So a whole lot of partying going on. Let's go on with the story. Verse 10. On the seventh day of this second banquet, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Maimon, Bizthar, Harbona, Bigthar, Abakthar, Zithar, and Carcass. <laughs> Pity him. <laughs> These seven eunuchs instructed them, commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti. Here's what's going on. Xerxes had been showing off all his possessions. He's got a lot of possessions. It took a whole six months to show them off. His goblets, his tapestries, his palace, his power. And now he wants to show everyone his ultimate possession. So he says, Vashti, come on in. Now, what do you think he wanted people to notice about his wife, her intellect, ability to solve maths puzzles, perhaps, maybe want to demonstrate her stunning personality. Well, if you're wondering, this is what it says in verse 11. He calls in Queen Vashti in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. In other words, he wants to parade her before a group of drunken men who've been drinking for a whole week, like some kind of prize exhibit at a cattle market. Now, in our day, interestingly enough, 
there's actually a phrase that describes attractive wives of rich and powerful men. What they're called? Wags or trophy? Yeah, you've, you've got it. Trophy wives. <laughs> it's like they exist to be an ornament, a trophy to show off the status of their husband. Well, that's pretty much what Vashti was supposed to do. Her husband says, come on in. I want everyone to see what a beautiful wife I've captured. But in verse 12, this extraordinary thing happens. Vashti turns around to him and says, no. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Now, how do you think the king responds? I think he says, you know, honey, you're right. I'm just embarrassed about my attitude here. I blame the drink. I've put you in such an awkward position. From the bottom of my heart, I'm so sorry. Sorry for even mentioning it, putting you through this ordeal. Look at verse 12. Then the king became furious, and he burnt with anger. Why? Because it struck at his sense of power and dominance. It made him look weak. And he is incredibly concerned about his appearance. You know, people who go through life that way are very vulnerable to how they look in front of other people. So their life tends to end up being something like a roller coaster. One minute it's great, the next they're in free fall. And it's all linked to what other people think of them. It's all based on superficial surface appearances. I'll tell you, it leads to a whole load of insecurity. So the king's enraged, but he doesn't quite know what to do about it. Verse 13, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Admathur, Tarshish, Mires, Marcina, and Memekun, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Now again, there's a whole lot of irony here. This is the most powerful guy in the known world at that time. He oversees 127 provinces. It was huge. But he can't control his wife. So he turns to the Supreme Court. He goes to the Supreme Court and makes this a matter of the state. What am I going to do about my wife? She won't do what I tell her to do. Of course, he's not particularly concerned with justice or the law. He just wants to find a way to get back at her and appear to be strong and in control. Well, one of his advisors, a man named Memekin, says, you know, if word about this event spreads, if this gets out, it could threaten the whole social structure, the whole social fabric of the empire. Women won't think of themselves as slaves to their husbands anymore. And that would be catastrophic. Everything could unravel. Things will spiral out of control. The entire empire will disintegrate. So in verse 19, Memekin advises the king to give an order. Verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. Well, the king is particularly pleased by this suggestion, so he sends the word out, Vashti is deposed. 
Let's read on, chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. When King Xerxes essentially sobers up, I think is what the writer's trying to get at here, he suddenly remembers what's happened. Verse 2, then the king's personal attendants make a proposal. Now, just to explain, at this point, this isn't the Supreme Court. Literally, the text says, the king's youths. These were his bodyguards. These were high testosterone young men. And these are the ones going to give him their idea of what to look for in a new queen. Anyone want to guess what their number one criteria is going to be? Poise, maturity, noble birth, intellect, spirituality. Verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Remember how many provinces there were? 127, with commissioners appointed in all of them to gather together all the beautiful young virgins into the harem. That is a lot of women. Reading on. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then, let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Here's going to be the measure of her worth. This girl is to be physically attractive and sexually desirable to the king. And she's also got to be attractive enough to turn the heads of all the men in the kingdom. And so, the inaugural version, the inaugural series of Persia's next top model is broadcast. Now, one of the people who's kind of drafted into it is this young Jewish girl named Esther. We're told she was adopted. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. We're also told that she was lovely in form and features. And the implication, at least of the text, is that she was drafted into this whole deal. Not that she signed on voluntarily. It's like she was made to come along. It's like women in that society, women in that culture, were just regarded as property of the king. He snapped his fingers. They had to obey. So she joins crowds of other young women, all competing for the crown. She makes it through the preliminary rounds, through boot camp, and into the final rounds. And the final round consists of being jetted off to the king's private mansion in order to be paraded in front of him. Sound familiar? Kind of even happened back in those days. Now, the preparation for this was incredibly elaborate. We'll, we'll get onto it in just a few moments. But I want us to just try and get the context first of all. So I'm going to call for some honesty. I want to do a quick survey. I want you to imagine, might require some imagination, might require kind of remembering back a long time, but I want you to imagine you're going on a date. I want honesty, I want a show of hands on this one. Preparation time, shower, hair, makeup, wardrobe selection, accessories, fragrance, everything all together. How many of you, show of hands for this one, how many of you have ever spent at least 15 minutes getting ready for a date? Uh, quite a few of you, yeah, yeah, jolly good. Okay, hands down. How many of you have ever spent an hour or more getting ready for a date? Uh, a bit sheepish, but no, 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 a few more hands. Uh, respect to you. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. How many of you 
might be slightly embarrassing, but I want you to be honest. How many of you ever spent more time getting ready for the date than you actually spent on the date itself? Show of hands. Okay, how about this one? How many of you have ever had more fun getting ready for the date than you had on the date itself? Show of hands. Loads of you, loads of you. Now, Look at the prep time for the first date with the king. Chapter 2, verse 12. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, I mean, it can take a long time, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. I suggest that's a lot of pressure for the first date. But that's what all of these women went through. Twelve months to get them up to what the king wanted. They devoted twelve months to adorn their outward appearance. That's how they were to train to become the queen. Twelve months to try to look attractive to this man. Message was simple. Who you are is how you look. Now, despite all of this, I think Esther's kind of presented by the writer as something of a model of modesty and restraint. It says in verse 13, anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. But down in verse 15, it says, when the turn came for Esther, the girl that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. In other words, she's portrayed as somebody who isn't going to pursue a whole load of other gimmicks to glam up her appearance. She just goes into the king without any of these other props, and she wins. Verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Ashti. And guess how he responded? What do you think might have happened next? Another banquet. Verse 18, the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And then the two of them lived happily ever after. Right? No, there's a twist. that The king's right-hand man, Haman, is mortally offended by Esther's guardian, Mordecai. Now, most people in that situation would take it up just with the individual involved, but not Haman. He decides to get revenge, not merely on Mordecai, but he decides to get revenge by destroying all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews throughout the entire known world. That is quite some grudge. And as we'll see over the next few weeks, in the end, the only individual who can intervene with the king, the last hope for the people of God who are living in exile, their last remaining hope is this young girl, Esther. She's faced with a huge defining question to answer. Underneath it all, who is she? Is it true that who you are is merely how you look. Is she just a beauty queen? Just a mannequin with sex appeal? Or is it possible for her to define herself in some other way? Could she live out her calling and be a wise, active, 
courageous servant of God. It's like the hopes of God's whole dream of community, at least for a while, rest on this young girl. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, the next couple of months, her response to this situation. But what I want us to do in the few minutes that remain today is just consider what I think is the key question coming out of this story thus far, out of the world in which she lived, in which we live too. How do you follow God in a world where who you are is how you look? How do you follow God in a world where who you are is how you look? Three challenges I like to ask all of us to wrestle with. Here's the first one. Do I treat people on the basis of how they look? Do I treat others on the basis of how they look? It's a common human tendency. But I want you to just remember the famous words in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, if you remember the story, the prophet Samuel has been sent to anoint a new king. And he goes to the family of a guy called Jesse, gets Jesse to line up all of his sons in a row, He sees this strong, handsome young man named Eliab. And Samuel's certain this must be the new king. I mean, he just looks like a king. This is what God says to Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you want to know one of the best ways of contrasting the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God is found just right there. We live in a world that looks at the outward appearance and says who you are is how you look. God looks beneath all of that. He looks at the heart. You know, numerous studies have shown that the more attractive people are, on average, the more they'll earn. Because... In our culture, we're so preoccupied with appearance. In fact, I found it shocking when I saw it this week. According to one recent survey, 11% of people in the UK, that's just over 1 in 10 here in the UK, say they'd abort a fetus if they knew it tended towards obesity. Think about that. 11% of the population in this country say they'd be tempted to terminate They'd abort a child if they knew it had a tendency towards a body shape that didn't quite fit what our society says is the right kind of body shape to have. They just terminate the life. That's the world we live in. And because we've grown up in this world, it's likely to have rubbed off on us in some way. So we need to be regularly turning the spotlight on our attitudes and our motives. Is there a part of me that tends to treat other people on the basis of how they look? Physical appearance, clothes, outward stuff, wealth, status, so on. Do I pay more attention to people who are physically attractive by society's standards? Do I try harder to compliment, to win their favour because They have higher status in the eyes of the world. And by the same token, do I ignore 
or pay less attention to people who are judged less attractive in our society? Do I reinforce this whole message that physical beauty is the key to love? Am I sensitive to the way that our society's obsession with physical appearance can damage the hearts of people made in the image of God if their face or body type doesn't fit the mold that our culture says is beautiful? We need to do an honest evaluation of where we stand with all of this. And on the other hand, do I do some kind of reverse discrimination? In other words, do I assume that if someone's attractive, they must be spiritually shallow? Or if someone's attractive, but they're kind of shy, do I assume they're a little aloof or arrogant? Or if I'm with someone that I think is more attractive than I am, do I feel threatened by them? Or do I suddenly become rather competitive? Well, to be honest, is there an area here that in your life needs repentance and change? just need a bit of honest assessment because it's so important that we are countercultural in all of this. I believe God's calling us as a church to form a very different kind of community, one that's not based on outward appearance. So that's the first question. Do I treat people on the basis of the way they look? Here's the second one. Am I spending at least as much time cultivating a heart for God as I am focusing on my outward appearance? Am I spending at least as much time cultivating a heart for God as I am focusing on my outward appearance? I want to be careful here. You see, beauty is a good thing. Beauty of all kinds, beauty in nature and beauty in people. Physical beauty is a good thing. I mean, God created it. But we live in a world that gets completely obsessed with it. Our society places far too high a premium on physical appearance. Just like King Xerxes, our culture says to us that externals matter a whole lot more than character. The color of your skin matters more than the content of your character. What you have, beauty, money, talent, power, connections, matters more than what you are. And therefore, we all have to undergo some kind of beauty treatments. It's like the world says to us, unless you get these credentials, unless you manage to get this killer CV, unless you get these clothes, unless you get the latest look, and unless you get these things, you're worthless. It says it's differently to men and women. It says it differently in different cultures. But the basic message is the same. You need to undergo these beauty treatments if you want approval from others. We notice, for example, how aging is portrayed as something in our culture to be avoided and denied. We live in a society that will try to convince us to do absolutely anything we can to avoid letting anyone know that we're actually getting older. Here are just some of the ads I've come across this week whilst preparing this message. One ad from Clarins encourages women to erase the years with age-defying luminosity. What does that mean? And at 112 pounds a bottle, it isn't just the years it's going to erase. I mean, this is, this is expensive stuff. Another company offers what they call a cellulite smoother at the bargain price of 150 pounds. Basically, for those who haven't got your own cellulite smoother, basically, it is an attachment. I'm not joking. It is an attachment for your vacuum cleaner 
that you rub over your thighs for 30 minutes a day. And, I kid you not, it comes with these two warnings. Warning number one, use of this product can lead to heavy bruising, <laughs> although this is temporary, until you come to your senses and stop vacuuming your legs for half an hour a day. Warning number two, warning number two, not advisable to use with industrial vacuum cleaners. <laughs> when the mind boggles. Alternatively, Clinique urges women to exfoliate daily and chart your epidermal progress in what's called a daily de-aging workbook. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anyone. You may have your own daily de-aging workbook. If you do, I'd love to chat with you later because I'm intrigued as to what one of these things actually is. And if I could get the secret from you, as we do this series through Esther, week on week, I could turn up at the front here looking younger than I did the week before. So if you've got one of these de-aging workbooks, come and tell me all about it later. And then finally, Ultima 2 ominously warns, premature aging, don't let it happen to you. It is, get this, every woman's worst nightmare come true. Now, that I suggest takes in a lot of territory. Think of all the frightening scenarios that you might face in life. The skin-conscious woman can face all of those head-on. What makes her wake up with cold sweats is the prospect of premature aging. That's what makes her skin crawl, which, of course, causes even more wrinkles. So just don't go there. Now, why is there this huge obsession with spending vast amounts of money on products that may or may not succeed in making you look younger? Because every woman knows that in this world where who you are is how you look, every wrinkle and every age spot and every gray hair marks down the list, the value, the price of a human being. Not with God. Not with God. Proverbs 16, 31 says, gray hair is a crown of splendor. I say, that's got to be one of the most revolutionary statements in the whole of the Bible, at least relative to our society. The Bible says, looking old isn't a problem. I've made some people's day already today. Grey hair is a crown of splendor. Looking old isn't a problem. In fact, it's to be valued. It's to be cherished. Hurrah! Let's hear it for all the old people. Now, you need to understand, you need to understand, that doesn't mean that a youthful appearance isn't a good thing. The loss of beauty with age is part of the fallenness of this world, which one day is going to be redeemed, it's going to be restored. So it doesn't mean that to want to look attractive or to pursue it is a bad thing. What it does mean is for the person who has walked with spiritual integrity, every mark of age is the accumulation of wisdom and maturity. Every mark of age is to God a mark of beauty. And grey hair, according to the Bible, is a crown of splendor. A lot different than the crown that King Xerxes wanted Vashti to parade herself in. Now, of course, our God is a God that chose to wear a completely different crown altogether. He chose to wear a crown of thorns. His tasting crowns and the world's tasting crowns 
have always been a whole lot different from one another. Challenge is, am I spending more time and energy on cultivating a heart for him, a heart for God, than focusing on my own outward appearance? I want to invite you, over the course of this series, think about this. Think about the time that's devoted to your outward appearance. I don't know, things like jogging, shopping, caring for your hair and your skin, caring for your body, cleaning it, shaving it, dressing it, plucking it, waxing it, preening it, making it smell good. These are all things that are good to do on the whole. The challenge is, will you say, I will at least match that time cultivating my heart, which after all, is what matters most to God. God says he looks on the heart, so I'm going to as best I can. So I assess my time. I'm going to be more devoted to building a strong and beautiful character than a strong and beautiful body. I think we can do that. I like to think we can say that. I'm going to spend more time and energy cultivating a heart for God than I do developing an outward appearance. That's the second question. Here's the last one, question number three. Am I learning to live as a person who is attractive in the eyes of God? Am I learning to live as a person who is attractive in the eyes of God? It's really important that we're not superficial or judgmental in our approach to this whole subject. You see, the longing to be attractive, the longing to have beauty isn't just vanity and pride. The truth is, if we're honest with one another, almost every person in this room knows what it is to want to look a little different. We all think about the way we look. That's why when you look at photographs and it's a group picture and you're one of the people in the group, you pretend to look at everyone else in the group and kind of comment on them, but inwardly, secretly, really what you're doing is pretty much looking at you. I don't know, maybe I'm better looking in this picture than I thought I was. Or maybe I can distract them and secretly remove this picture so no one else can see what I look like. Don't know why we do it. It's just the way we are. There's something inside all of us that wants to possess beauty. Part of that can be all messed up with vanity and pride. Part of it can get kind of obsessive. But God made beauty. And God made, he designed our bodies. Of course, because of the fall, we, like all of creation, we've been marred in some way. We, we don't experience our bodies or all of creation with the kind of beauty that God intended for us to have. But nonetheless, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Delighting in beauty is a good thing. I mean, read through the Song of Solomon sometime, like chapter 4, for example, which I just happened to be flicking through this week. You see these two lovers, a lover and his beloved. They're just reveling in one another's beauty. Your eyes are doves. It's one of the images that's used. Your neck is like the Tower of David, is another one. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. I don't know, you, you might not want to try that one at home. Apparently, it was a compliment back in those days but this goat hair thing probably isn't going to score you many points back home. But back in those days, apparently having hair like a flock of goats, oh, that was to be aspired to. That, that was great. But then comes the climax of these series of images reveling in beauty. 
You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's right in the pages of the Bible. This longing to be beautiful. This affirmation of beauty. Although it can and does get pretty messed up at times, underneath all that, it does say something important about us. We all want to be thought of as attractive by someone. The problem is, most of us are running around trying to fit the world's definition of beauty. Now, here's what I'd like to ask you to think about. Think about how people look to God. Think of what God sees as he looks even now at the people in this room. Because every one of us in this room right now is a creation of God. And God says we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And although we've all been marred by sin, Jesus, if you like, died to apply the ultimate cleansing treatment to us. And it's free. You know, Esther was loved because she was already beautiful. Jesus loves you in spite of your flaws in order to make you beautiful. Esther had to give her life and her freedom up for the king. But Jesus Christ is the only king who gives up his life and his freedom for you. He gives up everything for you, not, not because you're lovely, but to make you lovely. He was bound. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was bruised. He was hung on a cross to free you from the world's pursuit of superficial beauty. If you want to be beautiful as the world insists, financially, physically, whatever, the emphasis is all on the surface. But when you see Jesus coming to earth, becoming human, willingly giving up the glory that was rightly his in heaven in order to die on the cross for you, it changes everything. It must change everything. On the cross, Jesus became cosmically unsightly in order to give us his righteousness. And he has so clothed us with his righteousness. He has so surrounded us with his beauty. He has so cleansed us from our sin that God's heart bursts at the sight of us. He delights in us. He is overjoyed as he looks at us. Now, only the degree to which you know that to be true will you be set free from the world telling you what you've got to have in order to be beautiful. You know, we can get so messed up about beauty and attractiveness and so on. You really do need to reflect on the fact that when God looks at you, he just says, that is my beautiful child. That's my beautiful son, my beautiful daughter. Now, this is so important. We must learn when we look at one another to see what God sees. Mustn't judge one another on outward appearances. What's more? And here's where it's going to be really hard for some of us. We must learn 
to see what God sees even when we look at ourselves. Some of you have been really wounded and scarred on this one. You, you need to go home, you need to look in the mirror and just reflect on that fact. God delights in you. He loves you. You are so incredibly attractive in his eyes. Some of you, it just sounds a little bit airy-fairy for you. You're squirming a little at this talk. But actually, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. I'm telling you, when you begin to experience this truth, then you don't need to get messed up in the kind of cult of physical attractiveness that is so, so prevalent in our culture. This appetite, it's actually in each one of us. This deep desire to know we're loved and we're prized and we're attractive, we're, we're accepted in the eyes of others. The world just can't satisfy it, doesn't satisfy it. All around us are people who are longing for a community that says, who you are is not how you look. This church will be that place. Church Central will be a place where people come and see the beauty that God has made, the dignity that God has bestowed on us. People of every shape, every kind of face, every kind of nose and mouth and skin, big-haired people, little-haired people, no-haired people, tall people, short people, where they just love and accept each other. Man judges by the outward appearance. Who you are is how you look. God looks at the heart. And in the eyes of God, you and the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them, in fact, everyone on your row and in the rows in front of you and behind you, you are a prized creation of God. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, you are attractive in his eyes.